Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where each week we review one influential OT-related journal article. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL, and I'm so excited that you are taking time from your busy OT life to join us today. We are just wrapping up 4th of July festivities here in Aurora, Nebraska. I have been traveling the past couple weeks for a family reunion and to celebrate the 4th with friends, and it's really good to be back home in Aurora. I hope that whatever you've been up to this summer that you have enjoyed some rest and also been able to enjoy time at home. Before we dive into this week's article, I wanted to update you on some correspondence that I've had this past week. If you've listened to the podcast before, you may or may not remember that I've been working with a research librarian to help me find these articles, and she's kind of the person that I reach out to whenever I have any questions or get stumped on something. And the first piece of information I wanted to highlight from our correspondence was I had asked her about how many articles in a given year are actually published about occupational therapy or contain occupational therapy. Earlier this year, she helped me pull the 50 most influential OT-related journal articles, uh, being the 50 most cited OT-related articles from the past five years. But her and I had never really talked about how many articles she had filtered those down from. And it turns out that in the past five years, there were approximately 5,000 different journal articles published that contain occupational therapy. The precise number that she found was 4,923 articles over five years. And she did this search in Scopus, which is an online database that lots of universities use. So that's about 1,000 journal articles per year that are coming out, which to me really drives home the fact of there is just way too much information coming out for us to actually sit down and read everything. You would have to be reading about three journal articles per day just to keep up with what is being published in that current year. So having that information again just got me really excited about this project and about this podcast that together we can find those research articles that are the most important, the most influential, and really dive into those and get a sense of trends in occupational therapy and ultimately help provide better care to our patients. The other question I had for her was how to categorize articles like the one that we see today. As we'll talk about soon, this article is kind of just a review of the research that's out there. It's not a primary research piece, so it doesn't appear on our research hierarchy pyramid. It's not a systematic review because it doesn't lay out the systems by which it picked out different articles, uh, but it is a group of experts getting together and laying out what they see as the research trends on a particular topic. In the past, we've looked at something similar, which is treatment guidelines. But as you'll see, this is more an overview of research more than treatment guidelines, even though there's a lot of information you can derive for your treatments from this article. So all that to say, she typically categorizes this type of article as simply a review. Again, it's not primary research, but it is reviewing the research that is out there. So let's dive into this week's article. Our article this week is called Rehabilitation for Parkinson's Disease, 
Current Outlook and Future Challenges. It was published in the journal Parkinsonism and Related Disorders. This journal has an impact factor of 4.36. I always struggle with summarizing impact factors, so I just wrote out a definition this time for you. It says, the impact factor measures the average number of citations received in a particular year by papers published in the journal during the preceding two years. So basically, it's just a metric that measures the influence of a journal by breaking down an average number of times that a article is cited by another journal. An impact factor of 4.3 puts us pretty close to the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, which I think that impact factor is around 3. But just to give some context, there are journals that have an impact factor up to around 40 to 50. So this is a smaller journal, which makes sense because it is really specific and related to this one diagnosis. The article was published in 2016 and it ranks 18th on our list of the 50 most influential OT-related journal articles from the past five years. And for members of the OT Potential Club, this is our article of the week for July 8th through July 14th. As always, a comment with the most likes on Sunday the 14th will win $100. If you're not familiar with the OT Potential Club, I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of this summary. So like I said before, this article is really a review of the research that's happened around Parkinson's and rehab and also lays out the direction they see research going in the future and kind of some of the challenges surrounding that. This unfortunately is one of the few articles that we review that isn't available for free online. I think it costs around $35 to purchase this article. But if you work with Parkinson's patients on a regular basis or this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart, uh, this article is absolutely worth purchasing uh, just for the way that it describes at a really high level the different rehab options for Parkinson's um, and I especially love the breakdown of why they think these different rehab approaches work and the things that you need to consider and just be aware of that are still unknown in the research about rehab and Parkinson's. So the article highlights right away that there is still no consensus for the optimal rehab for Parkinson's patients. If you have a patient on your caseload and you are feeling worried that you're not doing the exact right thing, that's okay because there is not an exact right thing for you to be doing. This is still a topic that is being explored. Um, but that being said, there are broad themes that are certainly emerging in what works best for this population. And we're going to go into some detail about those treatments, but right away I wanted to highlight that there are really two pillars of rehab that the article highlighted. Um, and we'll kind of keep going back, coming back to these in our discussion. The first is that treatment should be goal-based. That is a pillar that occupational therapists should feel really excited about and also give them confidence in whatever you have been doing with Parkinson's patients, there's a good chance that it was goal-based already. Um, so you are already headed in the right direction. The second pillar is a lot more specific to Parkinson's disease, and it is this, that exercise-induced neuroplasticity should be the basic element of all rehab approaches. So let's dive a little bit into what exactly that means. That phrase, exercise-induced neuroplasticity. The research has shown for a long time that exercise 
has been consistently associated with improvement of motor and non-motor features of Parkinson's. And we're really still trying to understand exactly why that is. But there's been a lot of new studies that are helping us really understand the mechanisms behind that. Basically, regular exercise is increasing the neuroplasticity of the brain for these Parkinson's patients. So this neuroplasticity means that the central nervous system is actually able to modify its structure in response to a variety of external stimuli. And this neuroplasticity is helping the brain fight the effects of Parkinson's. It's giving it a neuroprotective effect. If you remember learning about Parkinson's in school, there is decreasing dopamine in the brain, which causes a lot of the symptoms related with Parkinson's. And another benefit of exercise is that it actually increases your dopamine levels and helps you more efficiently use the dopamine that you do have. So basically exercise is really important for everyone, but it is especially really, really important for Parkinson's patients because it does so directly counteract the mechanisms of the disease. And the thing that's really, really exciting about this kind of rehab and this kind of exercise is that research is pointing to that this exercise-induced neuroplasticity can actually slow the progress of the disease. Um, and that is a breakthrough for Parkinson's. There are great medications on the market for Parkinson's. Levodopa is kind of the gold standard, and it really does help patients manage their symptoms, but it doesn't actually slow the progression of the disease. So the fact that this exercise and this rehab actually slows the disease's progress is something that is really important. And when we have a Parkinson's patients come through our door, we need to feel really confident that we have very valuable information uh, and rehab to provide them. So now that we have those two pillars in mind, I'm going to highlight the different rehab approaches that the article talks about. Uh, but before I get into that, I do want to note that there are definitely certain types of exercise uh, that are more effective at eliciting this neuroprotective effect. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about dosing at the end of this review. So conventional rehab approaches. The first is aerobic exercise. And the article says that every rehab program should have aerobic exercise as a pillar. Aerobic exercise should involve vigorous and sustained activity to increase pulmonary function, oxygen consumption, and flow to the brain. Another conventional approach is resistance training, which helps increase strength and hopefully improves gait performance and other functional activities. Flexor stretching is also a traditional rehab approach. If you are familiar with Parkinson's, you know that eventually the patients tend to take on an abnormally flexed posture. They kind of become hunched at the shoulders. And so flexor stretching is intended to stretch out those flexor muscles that are causing the hunching kind of posture. Cueing is also a conventional rehab approach. Oftentimes as the disease progresses in Parkinson's, some internal signaling becomes defective. For example, I think of like having troubles navigating a doorway. Uh, so cueing is something that becomes important in rehab. And lastly, 
traditional rehab approach that the article mentions is treadmill training, uh, which our physical therapy counterparts probably do the most frequently. And that is something that helps the patients retain their gait speed as much as possible. Again, if you remember about Parkinson's, the gait typically tends to slow. So those are the conventional rehab approaches. And again, that aerobic exercise is really the pillar um, and something that we need to have at the forefront of our minds when we are working with these patients. The article then mentions three non-conventional strategies. It says the evidence for these strategies is more rare, but the available research is also very promising. And these three strategies have the benefit of being enjoyable and promoting social engagement. And you've probably heard about uh, programs that are specifically centered around delivering uh, at least one of these strategies. The first strategy I'll highlight is martial arts, such as Tai Chi or boxing is another uh, strategy that I think of. Dance therapy is also listed along with music. So all three of these uh, strategies are ways to get in your aerobic exercise and challenge the body in a more fun way. And lastly, the article lists three quote unquote newer or innovative approaches. These have even less research behind them because uh, they are newer, but all of them have enough promise that they made it into this article. Uh, the first is motor imagery, which is the representation of actions in the absence of overt movements. So it's basically just visualizing uh, the movements as you would hope to perform them. And this is a treatment approach that we've heard mentioned with stroke patients before and can honestly almost seems silly, but there is some really powerful mechanisms that you activate when you just imagine yourself doing an activity. It's as simple as when I was in basketball and they would have me visualize making that free throw. Um, when you visualize something, your body in a way I don't fully understand, tries to align with how you visualized yourself doing that. This is not 100% foolproof because I did not make all my free throws in high school. Action observation therapy is another one of the approaches, and this is based on the activation of the mirror neuron system and entails the observation of different actions combined with the repetition of those observed actions. So the mirror neuron system is, again, a very like powerful learning system that seems really simple, uh, but I think of it as being one of those really early primitive systems that we use as babies and as children where we are watching adults and trying our best to mirror what they're doing. So it's a very old and powerful system uh, where if you see someone doing something, it is becomes easier for you to imitate it. And this is especially helpful in Parkinson's where, as we've mentioned, the internal signaling isn't as effective as it has been. So seeing that external example becomes really, really helpful. And then the last three are all kind of intertwined because they're all technology related and I can see them being combined in different combinations, but I'm going to list them all separately. Uh, the first is virtual reality, which is based on the interaction of the person with a virtual environment with the aim to promote 
motor learning through enhanced perceptions, such as your visual, auditory, and haptic systems. So again, the thought is that virtual reality can be extra helpful for patients with Parkinson's, just as we just talked about, because it adds that extra external stimuli and that enriched environment could potentially be really helpful for Parkinson's patients since their internal signaling is not as strong. Uh, next is robotic rehabilitation, which I am definitely associate with stroke rehab, but it has that possibility of delivering high dosage and high intensity training. Typically, that robotic device gives you the opportunity to practice certain emotions over and over again, more so than could happen with just like a therapist helping you. So this is definitely a technology that we'll keep hearing about, uh, not just with Parkinson's, but with other diagnoses. And the last innovative approach is exergaming, which is exercise-based computer games. And again, the same logic applies as the previous strategies that having that external stimuli is especially helpful for our rehab patients. And due to the more fun, engaging nature of the game, gives the opportunity to possibly have more repetitions than you would if you were just standing there doing an exercise by yourself. So I want to circle back and talk about dosing real quick, which the article brings up in multiple places. It says that activating this exercise-induced neuroplasticity is dependent on intensity, repetitions, specificity, difficulty, and complexity. So probably any exercise is better than no exercise, but it, there does seem to be this threshold of exercise where the neuroplasticity is really expanded. Unfortunately, there isn't a concrete like number of minutes or number of times of week that patients should be engaging in this exercise, but there's two studies I want to highlight that kind of illustrate two important factors you want to consider. So one study highlighted involved physiotherapy delivered in twice daily sessions five times a week for four weeks. Um, that is quite a bit of therapy uh, to be seeing someone two times per day, five days a week for four weeks. Uh, that is probably more than the average Parkinson's patient is getting. But the benefits of this treatment persisted for 12 months and the patients showed decreased need for increasing their levodopa doses. So those results are really powerful. It's really remarkable to see the effects of treatment lasting that whole year and actually impacting the medication that's needed. That is a good argument for considering more intense rehab with Parkinson's patients than maybe we've been doing in the past. But on the other hand, it's also really important to remember that incorporating rest for these patients is really vital um, to help them manage fatigue but also because rest is necessary for learning consolidation. So another highlighted study showed that patients undergoing a treadmill training program showed more long-lasting improvements when participating in treatments two to three times per week versus five times per week. So to me, that study highlights that factoring in rest is really important. The article postulated that one way that might be an effective approach to combining this intense rehab with rest would be to have periodic cycles of intense rehab, uh, maybe even once per year could be a good way to balance the intensity with the rest. And I'm saying that assuming that they're still doing some level of exercise throughout the year, uh, but maybe 
once per year doing that five days a week more intensely and then the rest of the year going down to two to three times per week just doing something on their own. So that's my broad summary of the article, but I still wanted to highlight three takeaways for occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants. The first is this, that we need to be thinking long-term when we have Parkinson's patients on our caseload. With the promising research behind exercise-induced neuroplasticity, we need to be considering how we can support our patients in establishing regular exercise routines that extend beyond the time when we are seeing them, and that these exercise routines hopefully become a lifelong habit. We can't just be thinking about what they are doing in our treatment sessions, but we need to be thinking about how we are setting them up to be leveraging this exercise-induced neuroplasticity throughout their lifetime. That's obviously true for all the patients that we see where we're thinking beyond our treatment sessions, but that is just especially important when we have a Parkinson's patient come through our door. And it definitely does seem worthwhile to be thinking of a long-term plan uh, for therapy where maybe we plan on checking in with these patients once a year um, and have maybe a session of more intense therapy on that once a year cycle or every six months uh, to give them that boost that those high intensity training times are showing. The second takeaway is that multidisciplinary approaches should definitely be considered. Um, given the complexity and the intensity of therapy that these patients are uh, potentially looking at, an all-hands-on-deck approach is probably best. The article specifically highlighted a multidisciplinary approach that was completed in an inpatient setting with high-intensity intervention, evidence-based practice, and transfer of training to functional activities. And this program had benefits that still persisted at the one-year follow-up. Um, and again, it's just amazing to be seeing these results that are having such a long-term functional impact for our patients. And lastly, I didn't really highlight this throughout my summary, but it was sprinkled in throughout the article uh, that treatment needs to be individualized. The needs of every patient with Parkinson's varies considerably, both because we're looking at individuals and because these individual needs are going to be changing throughout the course of uh, their disease process. Process. So just like we're already doing as occupational therapists, it's really important to consider the patient's individual goals and be linking the treatments back to these goals. Okay, so that is everything I have for you about this article today. I think this episode is going to be a little longer just because this was such a dense article with so many concrete takeaways for occupational therapists. Again, if this is a subject matter that you are interested in, um, it is a great article to purchase and read through yourself because there were obviously lots of details that I wasn't able to get into this summary. And just as a reminder, this podcast is a part of the OT Potential Club, which is our online journal club. Uh, the podcast you're listening to is obviously free, but for $25 a year, you can join us at otpotential.com. Um, and sign up for the club. And I have a written summary of all the articles that I've reviewed. Um, and I also include assessment information and documentation tips that I don't give out in the podcast. For example, 
uh, this article listed some great assessments for us to be using. Um, and I think there's really compelling ways that we can be documenting our interventions for patients with Parkinson's. Um, for the first time ever, I think I'm going to try and summarize this article in an infographic too. I know that many of us as OTs are visual learners and that it would be nice to maybe have a pinup at your desk where you can just quickly reference um, the high points of this. For example, something to remind you that exercise-induced neuroplasticity is that key pillar that we're looking at for Parkinson's. So that will be in the club as well. And lastly, the club does have a forum around each journal article, which gives us the opportunity to ask questions and share any experiences that you might have working with Parkinson's. And as I mentioned, the before the person who makes the most like comment at the end of the week uh, does receive $100. So head on over to otpotential.com to sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and give great care this week.